Hello and welcome to another episode of Why They Win. Today's guest is adventurer Jason Lewis. In 1994, he had very little fitness to speak of, but he had one dream in mind. He was going to circumnavigate planet Earth using human power. That means using canoe, uh, rollerblading, pedal boats, biking. Uh, he did this for 13 years and he was nearly killed. He, he, his legs were broken after being hit by a drunk driver in a car. Uh, his boat capsized. He was thrown in prison and he was nearly eaten by a crocodile. And he admits to feeling so lonely at nights as he travelled across oceans that uh, he actually named a fish Homer. But when he returned in 2007, 4,833 days later, and 47,000 miles under his belt, he realised one thing. You must listen to those who dismiss your idea as crazy. You need to listen to the voice in your heart, because that's the truth. And as long as you listen to it, it'll all come good in the end. Uh, so, Jason Lewis, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, what was it about this challenge that inspired you to do it? It was actually somebody else's idea, um, Stevie Smith, who I went to college with, and um, he came up with the idea while working as an environmental scientist uh, back in the early 90s, and I think he was sort of bored of his job and a bit disillusioned with um, with his work, and he um, came up, he, he, he thought, you know, I've got to do something uh, with my life, I've got to do something big, including around, you know, something... Uh, that will um, take in a sort of a mammoth challenge, and uh, so he thought. Well, people have people have crossed the continents by human power, and a few people back then had run the oceans. And so he thought. Well, what about com uh, connecting all those journeys up together into one continuous thread around the planet? And that was when he thought of a human power circumnavigation, and um, and that was when. Um, that was when he called me up and invited, and invited me to do it. And what were your thoughts at the time? I mean, were you match fit? Absolutely not. No, neither <laughs> of us were. Uh, I can hear you laughing. I mean, neither of us had uh, much fitness. Neither of us had any experience. Um, uh, to be honest, when, when you're preparing for something like this, um, especially if you don't have the funding, um, and we 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 really struggle with getting sponsorship. Um, you, you, you're just so busy all of the time. You don't really have time to get fit. And so we had this saying that um, you know we're, we're, we're sort of doing our weight training exercises, which is basically waiting until it was time to go, and then we would start training. And that was what it really turned out to be. We just we, we started getting fit when we actually left on left on the circumnavigation. Did you have any background in fitness at all? Um, to be honest, I, I spent some time in the uh, in the army, and um, uh, but to be really, really honest, uh, no is is the short answer. Um, so uh, uh, I became I became interested in fitness really out of necessity during the course of the journey, um, and and. Also, I think back in those days, back in the early 90s, um, uh, fitness was uh, something that wasn't really scientifically honed. And, um, and that, of course, has now since become very much a part of challenges and, and a part of athletes' regimen. But, but back in those days, it was, it was more of a sort of embarking upon this, this grand adventure and then 
So when Stevie said to you, I want to do this insane challenge, did you jump at it or did you uh, sort of think twice? Uh, I jumped at it. <laughs> I really did. I mean, I, I, I mean, I remember we were actually, I remember exactly the moment that he, that he asked me, we, because I went over to Paris where he was working and, and, he, and he pitched me the idea. Um, he sort of mentioned it on the phone and said, oh, I've got this idea, but he didn't probably flesh it out until we were on this, on the metro, the Paris metro. And, and, um, and he, he told me exactly what, what the idea was. And I just said, and that time I was working in London, I had a little business, um, doing contract cleaning, uh, carpets for hotels, windows. I mean, nothing, no, nothing really not related to adventure at all. Um, and uh, I was also singing in some really terrible bands in the evenings. I had this, I was an aspiring rock musician. And, and so he, and I think by that point, I was 24 when he pitched me. And I was already sick of living in London. I think I needed an off ramp. And when you told me this idea, I just thought, I mean, why not? Um, it's theoretically, you didn't have to be an expert to do it. Um, you didn't have to be fabulously fit to begin. If you could ride a bike and if you could put two feet, you know, one foot in front of the other, then in theory anybody could do a trip like this. And that was a thing that um, that was a thing that really, uh, that really attracted me to it. So, what goes from a man who who has no kind of experience doing this? What 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 do you say uh, to yourself when you're heading out? I mean, what were your concerns? There must have been some. I mean, the biggest concern, I didn't doubt that I could ride, even if the first day on a bike, um, you know, 70, 80 miles, that wasn't very pretty. Um, but I knew that, I mean, I could end up doing 100 miles a day once I got fit. The biggest fear, though, was, was the Atlantic crossing our first ocean in this boat that we built um, that was powered exclusively by pedals. And um, basically, it's like a recumbent cycling position inside the boat. And the, uh, it, the, the, instead of a back wheel, you're driving a propeller, two-bladed 14-inch uh, propeller that spins at uh, about 300 RPM. And, and this was the device, 26-foot by 4-foot boat, was how we were going to cross the, uh, the Atlantic. And um, back then, there had been only a few people who rode oceans and no one, I think one other person, an American had rode, uh, sorry, pedaled an ocean. And so it was really quite, I mean, now, of course, there's, there's all the ocean rowing races and it's, it's more of a, uh, a known quantity. But back then, pedaling out into, I remember the first day pedaling out from Portugal into this huge expanse of blue, um, not really knowing what, I mean, we had three days worth of sea experience between us, literally. Um, and, and really, that was the point where I thought, maybe we've sort of bitten off more than we can chew. <laughs> but this was pre-internet, wasn't it, as well? Mm-hmm, yeah. So yeah, what? so that was the other interesting thing, is, uh, you know, our parents and our family didn't know if we were alive from one end to the next. And, and so it's been interesting seeing, uh, going from the analogue age, where we were using a sextant to navigate with, I mean, GPS was just starting to come in, but it was really expensive still. And going all the way through to my, you know, final ocean crossing on this particular trip across the Indian Ocean, where it was all singing, all dancing, GPS, satellite phones, and the 
whole bit, which has its own sort of issues in terms of, uh, you know, technology in the field has has its own problems. But yeah, that first ocean crossing was, was very simple. Um, people didn't know where we were. Um, but in a sense, if someone's not worrying that, you know, that you haven't clocked in every day, like they do now, expect you to, then, then they don't worry so much. Um, so, in a way, you know, it's like if we arrived the other, I remember, I mean, we did eventually ran it, ran into a cable leg ship two thousand the way across and they notified our, notified our parents that we were alive. But, um, but yeah, that was, that was just the way it was back then. Was there a moment uh, after you started, maybe a few days in, where you thought, yeah, I can do this? Was there a definite moment where you were bolstered? For the ocean crossings? Yeah, I never doubted. I mean, it's weird because we all react differently to different environments. And Stevie and I had the same level of experience setting out across the Atlantic as each other, basically none. And, uh, and, and he was the one who thought of this idea to do this journey. And I was tagging along, really. And he was the one who got the boat built and, you know, raised the early money, you know, raised the money that we needed to do it. And, but it was weird. Once we got out into, into this ocean environment, I absolutely loved it. And I really felt comfortable out there uh, on the ocean. And I felt the ocean was just, I, I mean, part of it is being confident in your boat. If, if you know the boat's made well, and if it's designed well, and then really that's the key. It's, it's, it's confidence in your boat. But Stevie didn't feel as confident being out there as I did. So in a weird sort of, in a, in a weird way, um, I, had a, I had a much better crossing than he did, and, and he was much, he was more fearful um, uh, that something was going to happen at any moment, that we were going to be capsized, that we were capsized on one occasion. Unfortunately, he was trying to have more nearly trapped. I'm laughing about it, but it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but he, um, he, I think he just didn't feel as confident on the ocean, and it's, it's just, it, that's just the way, that's just the way it, it turned out to be, and we couldn't have predicted it um, to be that way. But most people uh, listening uh, would think to themselves, "Well, look, I, I work in an office. Um, I'd love to do something like this, but doesn't it take a, a special kind of person? Would you say that you're mentally tough, or you have the edge?" I think I'm quite. Uh, I think I'm quite tenacious in so much as if I if I set out to do something, it's a, there's an element of personal pride to finish it, and I do wonder sometimes if it's just my enormous ego uh, that is to drive me forward. And um, this is something that's been really interesting uh, to explore writing the book about the circumnavigation is, is looking at the reasons why I set out with Steve, why I continued. After he left, after five years, we reached Hawaii. And after five years, he decided that that was enough. I mean, we were already five years into this journey that we'd only ever get us, that we'd only supposed to take three years. But because of lack of funding, because of accidents, I would run over in Colorado, had both legs broken, that was nine months, because of all these mishaps that we couldn't foresee. Um, the journey was taking so much longer that he decided to leave and I carried on and, you know, 13 years later, I'm, I'm thinking, God, what am I, why am I still doing this thing? But um, I think also as well as being, uh, I don't, 
apart from being quite determined, I really am no different to anyone else. And I really try and stress this to people is, is I'm not an ex, I, I really don't know what I'm doing half the time. But I, I, I'm also, I also just tend to just say, you know, sort it, I'm just going to give it a shot. I don't know how, I, how to kayak, but I'll figure it out along the way. I'm not massively fit, but hey, we'll get fit on our bikes. If you just start the thing, and even if you're not an expert, the main thing is just to begin, and then you'll look back months, years later, and realize, wow, I've come a long way to get to this point. Um, and, and the other thing I think is really knowing why you're doing it, and I think my reasons for doing the journey changed over the years uh, and evolved, and that was a key reason for me to keep going for the, for the full 13 term. What were those reasons, and how did they change? I started out really just, I think, as a young guy, wanting to prove something to myself. And a lot of young guys and women do start out on these types of challenges to just see what, see if they can do it and see, if, see what they're made of. Because when you're out there in these extreme wilderness environments, that's when you do really find out who you are when everything gets stripped away and all the... Um, I don't know if I can swear on this, but where all where sort of the BS of, of, of modern life kind of falls away uh, when you're out on an ocean and you're just stripped bare and uh, there's no excuses, there's no one telling you how great you are and how bad you are. It's just what you, it's just you and the elements. And uh, that simplicity is something which is extremely um, leveling and empowering. And so I started out really, I think, on a personal level uh, really for personal reasons. I wasn't particularly interested to, uh, to achieve a Guinness World Record. I never have been, to be honest, but that's a means to an end in itself. That's useful for sponsorship and, and, and gaining media traction. But my reasons, when I was run over in Colorado and I was lying in bed, both legs shattered from a hit-and-run driver, one leg, I was told, might have to be amputated below the knee, um, I really had to think, why would you continue this since you've almost just been killed. And uh, then I realized that it had, there had to be something more. And it was while I was recuperating for the next nine months in a wheelchair initially and then on a walking frame and going, uh, and I went around to local schools giving talks. And it was, it was meeting uh, a few key teachers in Colorado and then uh, collaborating with those teachers on developing curriculum to take the adventure into the classroom that I really found my reason to keep on going for the next uh, for the next decade. What was it? Seeing people's eyes light up, or what was it that, that changed? Well, I love uh, working with young people, and I give presentations. Um, I'll, I'll sort of rather you know be, in, be with a bunch of uh, classroom of kids than a, than a corporate audience, because I feel uh, young people. I mean, young boys and girls, especially in the to 10 through 14, 15 year age bracket, they're at that point where they, their imagination, you, know, you can talk to them about a journey like this and you can see their eyes light up um, and they can see that you're not anything particularly special, you know, and, and that you're not an expert. And you tell them, you know, we just had this idea and we wanted to do it and uh, nobody gave us any money, but we're doing it anyway. And you just see that, the, you just start to see a few kids, not all of them, but a few kids, you see the wheels start to turn as to what is possible. 
if you put your mind to it. And those are the key kids that I still get emails from uh, you know, 15 years later, and they're now doing all sorts of interesting, amazing things. And they're the kids who are like, yeah, I, I came to my classroom in, you know, wherever it is. I mean, I've been to over a thousand schools now. And, um, and, and you presented my class and blah, 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 blah. And I still remember your story. And, and so that, I, I know those, those were the kids that, that, you know, that you can touch with, with, a, with a story like this. And it will actually sort of resonate with them and, and help, help those kids to maybe feel, you know what, I can do anything I want as well. So what, what kind of mind tricks did you use then um, to keep going? Did you count? I mean, there was, a, there was a period where you were in a boat for paddling for 19 hours. Is that right? Yeah, there was a very, probably the most dispiriting part of the whole journey was uh, being in the countercurrent in the middle of the Pacific. And by this point, Steve had left and I was on my own paddling from Hawaii to this tiny little island called Tarawa. Uh, about 2,400 miles further west across the Pacific. And uh, in this, and the doldrums, as they're also known, uh, the equatorial countercurrent, it's a belt of, of ocean that's about 400 miles wide. And the water is, because of the Coriolis force of the Earth spinning in space, the, the water, that body of waters, is funneling back towards Central America. Whereas north of there, you've got the water and the wind that uh, are, are rotating clockwise, and in the southern hemisphere, they're rotating, rotating counterclockwise. So you get, I got, I remember that first day in the countercurrent, pedaling for 90 hours, as you just said, and it's weird because you, it seems like you're going a regular pace, and you, you are making headway, but of course, being on, on alone, I had to sleep for a few hours after you know, pedaling for that length of time. And then when I woke up, uh, I switched on the GPS. By this point, we had GPS and realized to my horror that I was back where I started from the previous morning. <laughs> and and that was that was bad enough. And that it was like the next day was the same and the next day. And I ended up being stuck in this countercurrent, pedaling on the spot for uh, over a month. Absolutely terrible. In terms of mind games... In one spot for a month? Well, not exactly one spot, but essentially oh, I'm going to look at the GPS track and it's like a big bowl of spaghetti. You know, you, I'd make maybe five miles one day and then I'd be pushed back two miles the next. And it, it, it was, you know, it was, it was incredibly, incredibly demoralizing because when, you know, normally when you're on an expedition, you know, you're looking, you're motivated by how much progress you're making, especially in someone like, in an ocean environment where there's not much to, to be able to judge your progress other than your little pencil dots on the chart. You know, you're not seeing mountain ranges passing, you're not seeing rivers. It's blue every day, it's blue and not much. And so you need, psychologically, you need something to, mot- to keep you going. So what did you and do? So, the pen- so I started to, this was the thing. I mean, I, this was really the most important thing I think I learned on this journey was that I, uh, there was one point where I remember, I remember had, I had a meltdown after about two weeks of pedaling going nowhere. And I remember oh. lying down at the bottom <laughs> of the boat and crying like a, I mean, basically I had a sort of a, a self, I had a little pity party in the bottom <laughs> of the boat. Thinking, well, I can't carry on, you know. Fair <laughs> like, enough. You man. know, and I just, 
But I, then I realised, hang on, if you don't pedal, your boat, the boat's going to be going backwards and you're going to oh. run out of food even quicker. So there was the, actually, I had to just keep, I had to keep pedaling. And it was while, it was while I was pedaling, just for the sake of pedaling, uh, after that episode of, uh, of Mel, after Mel, after sort of breaking down, that I realised that, you know, just pedaling for the sake, for the sake of pedaling, there's an element of beauty in that. And it's just like, if after a while, if you can just forget about where you're trying to get to and forget about the pencil dots, dots on the chart, forget about the whole, the long-term picture, if you just pedal for the sake of pedaling, then actually there's an, there's, there's an element of meditation in that. And ironically, I found that if I could just forget about where I was trying to get to, then my performance ended up being better. The GPS, you know, my, my results on the GPS were, were better. I was My RPMs were higher when I wasn't obsessing about the lack of progress. And I did eventually get out of the countercurrent after a month and a half. But so what were you doing? You were just literally just going with the flow and kind of trying to have fun and enjoy it. I mean, is, is, that, is that how you how you did it or...? I don't, what is well, it that just, just kept you from going totally crazy? Well, there's two things. One was, as I said, just forgetting about the long-term goal and just focusing on the here and now, the present moment. And that's like, that's the thing that got me out of the counter-time. And really, that's the thing that got me around the world, forgetting about trying to you know, achieve something and just enjoy the now, enjoy the mm. present. And the other thing that helped me was... Um, is that is it, you're, probably, you're, you're probably going to think I'm a lunatic here, but there was one point where uh, I remember getting incredibly lonely, and I remember I used to clean my pots and pans over the side of the boat uh, after having a meal, and the fish, these little pilot fish, these black and white striped pilot fish, would come and feed off the food scraps. And one of these fish I called Homer after Homer Simpson because he, it was the fattest and the biggest and fattest, <laughs> fattest out of all these lot. And uh, one day I just started talking to this fish. I just talking, having a conversation with him like he was Steve or he was like another person in the boat. <laughs> and um, before I knew it, I had, I started having conversations with other people, fictitious people in my head. Um, I mean, they weren't, it wasn't like I was hallucinating. I mean, they were, it was, they just started out as having fun. But did you ever see that film um, uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks? Yeah, yeah. And he's talking to Wilson, the, the, the basketball, right? That's right, yeah. And it was a bit like that. It was just, it was a, it was a way to, uh, to to create a sense of community out there when I was so lonely and so demoralized. And so I would just have uh, conversations with, with fictitious friends and, and conversations out loud and arguments and... Uh, and there was an Irishman and a, a French, and there was almost cliche, but it was these conversations with these people that that kept me, that kept my uh, kept my spirits up. And I was also amazed to learn that you rollerbladed seventy miles a day, covering four thousand five hundred miles. On one day, I did that. That was my biggest day. It was seventy three odd miles. Seventy three yeah. odd miles. When you knackered. Yeah, absolutely. That was the day that I was hit as well on the road. You're joking. And uh, normally, normally, again, I mean, when I set out from Miami, I had never rollerbladed before. I'd done it. I'd taken a couple of lessons, 
And so for the first 300 miles, I had to hang on to Stevie's shoulder to stop myself from wiping out every sort of three, every few yards. But then he went, so he went separately across the southern states, and I took off through the middle part of the states. And again, I just thought, you know, if I can do a mile on these things, I can do four and a half thousand miles if I just give it enough time. But and the, so the, the, an average day on rollerblades would be about 50 miles, 50 to 55 wow, miles would be a incredible. big day. But, you know, if you bake it up and if you get going early enough, I mean, the heat in the, in the deep south of America is the biggest problem, the heat, the humidity. So what did you, um, what did you so do? What was your what was your what were your tactics basically on those kind of days? Just, just get going first at first light because um, by ten o'clock, especially this was July, so it's in the northern hemisphere. So this is like rollerblading through states like Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Oklahoma. I mean, really, really humid, hundred plus degrees. It takes a bit of getting used to. And the only way to handle it, they call, I couldn't I couldn't run a blade at night because, like, you could on a bike because you could have lights. I mean, it's just too dangerous to be on these roads. Uh, it's dangerous enough in the day because you're taking up a wider swath of road than a bike. So I'd always be paranoid about getting hit from behind. I'd always get off. Get, unless I was on a hard shoulder, I'd always get off the road if I heard a car coming from behind. Um, so I'd get up, just start going really early in the morning at first light, and then by 9 o'clock... 9.30, when it was started to really heat up, I'd, I'd probably done, probably notched about 20, 25 miles by the time I, by the time, uh, you know, people were getting up and around doing breakfast. And then I would just lay up for a bit and then get going again in the afternoon, two o'clock, and then, and then do another kind of stint in the evening from about four till, four till seven, just before it got dark. So I did the majority of my miles in the really early morning and then in the, in the, in the late afternoon. And what about what about calories? How did you get all the food down you? Wasn't that an extra cost you had to weigh up? Yeah, I mean, there was no science to this. Again, 1995 was when I did the crossing of the States on a rollerblades. And um, I mean, I had very little money. Uh, I left. We just spent six months fundraising in Miami, doing talks uh, to rotary clubs, selling T-shirts for $20, names on the boat for $20. And so we paid back some of the money that we owed in England uh, leaving on the trip. And we, I think we had about $300 with me when I left Miami. And um, it wasn't much. I mean, buying fast food, uh, you know, you're rolling. I mean, I, I had I carried a little rucksack um, with uh, a poncho, a lightweight sleeping bag, and a, cookie, and a, and a little saucepan which I would cook up rice in the evenings and just chuck a tin of mackerel or a tin of sardines, mackerel or beans into this pot and before I slept. And if I ran, if I was going through a town, I'd maybe afford a, a burger or a taco or something. I mean, it was really, it was really uh, sort of just winging it again. And what about, what about sleeping and resting? And like, where did you put your head down each night? Was it by the side of the road? How did it work? Uh, probably one or two. This was the thing about rollerblading. This was the part of the reason why I wanted to do it because I figured that um, because it was quite unusual, certainly back then, um, no one had actually rollerbladed across the states back in '95 solo. Uh, I thought, you know, this is going to really uh, allow me um, to meet people. You know, and, and Americans are quite inquisitive anyway. So uh, it was brilliant. I mean, it, it, probably two nights in every three. Uh, I was someone, you know, I'd rode into a, a petrol station 
at the end of the day to get some water for my water bottles. And someone would just ask me what the hell I was doing. And, um, <laughs> and I would tell them. And before I knew it, I was invited back to their home and around the kitchen, you know, around the dinner table, and they would cook food. And so, and, and I'd get a bed for the night that way. But every third night, I would find myself between towns and I would just um, lay out uh, my bed. Well, I didn't have a thermal rest, I don't think. I just had a, like I said, a lightweight sleeping bag and I had my poncho to keep the rain off and I'd just sleep, you know, 100 yards from the road and then and then get up and first thing and, and start it all over again the next morning. And what about injuries, though? I mean, with that kind of ex- amount of exercise, when you when you constantly getting little niggles and pains and, and what have you that would, would have hampered the kind of the mission. Yeah, the big problem with a, a journey like that is um, well, initially it was the chafing, um, with the blisters, with wearing uh, new skate boots. Um, so uh, there was a lot of uh, zinc oxide tape, tape that was got through the first few weeks. Um, and then in the south, also you're dealing with. Uh, uh, I mean, luckily I was. Uh, I think from pedaling across the Atlantic, uh, I was still. My legs were still pretty, pretty good shape, and that was one of the advantages of, 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 of you know, of yeah, having been in the pedal boat is I just had really good um, muscle fitness, muscle tone in my lower body, which was perfect for, for rollerblading. Um, but yeah, it took. Definitely took. Um, we're taking it using obviously a completely, you know, some different muscles for skating. Um, a lot of it's technique, which I needed to get my head around. Uh, the other issues through the deep south were the uh, insects, and uh, I mean, you get uh, one night I had a very bad experience with these little fire ants, these little orange ants that you get in the American South and they bite like hell and, and they attacked me en masse oh, wow. okay. in a really bad spot for a guy I might say <laughs> I, so I had a next morning I was in agony uh, so I had, a, I had a had an interesting experience there um, in a thrift store where I picked up what I thought was a pair of basketball shorts that ended up being a pair of women's culottes but <laughs> Did, did you That's have another story? Did you have fun? I mean, were you having fun during this? I mean, did you, you, I know you got boils. You have to tell us all about that. But amidst it all, were you having fun? Uh, if I'm entirely honest, I would say on these kinds of things, I want to say twenty five percent of it's fun. Probably twenty percent of it's fun. Really? The other eighty percent. The other eighty percent is a bloody grind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's no way around. I mean, there's no way around the fact that skating 50 miles a day on busy roads, uh, where you're getting a, abuse quite often from drivers who don't think you should be rollerblading on the road, uh, and it's hot as anything. You're sweating. It's not. It's not fun. But the fun. But it's counterweighted by those. You know, those occasion. Those. Uh, the twenty percent, the fifteen percent of the time when you're meeting new people, you're learning new things, you're seeing incredible sights, and after a month, you're feeling fantastically fit. That I mean, that's so. It's it's in order to kind of get the good stuff, you have to go through a lot of a lot of bad stuff. 
And what happened with the, the boils, infected boils? How did you get those? And, the blood, and blood poisoning as well. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, the, the two were connected. I was on my solo voyage crossing the Pacific after Seabird left. And this was uh, around the time before I just got into the Kandakan. And I went a little bit doolally. But I'd been swimming off the boat to keep to cool off. And after about a month at sea, you'll get these things called salt sores, which are salt water boils. It's when your sweat pores become compacted with salt. Oh. And if you're not able to wash, have a, a wash with clean water, um, which I didn't have enough fresh water because I just didn't have enough hours in the day to pump the desalinator pump to create fresh water. I, had, I was producing just enough to drink, like six liters of water a day. Um, if you can't wash the salt off, then, then your skin becomes, then your sweat pores become compacted and you'll, you'll get these boils that will develop. Very painful, they become infected. And what I was doing is getting off the boat swimming occasionally. And what I didn't realize was that salt water is actually extremely dirty and full of pathogens. And um, I remember one day I was, uh, I started getting weaker and more lethargic and I thought I was uh, just dehydrated. So I started uh, treating myself with uh, rehydration salts. And then I got an email from a dermatologist in Colorado who was reading my blog entries. By this point, I was sending them back by satellite phone. And she said, you know, I think there's something else wrong with you more than just dehydration. And I called her on the satellite phone and she diagnosed me with with, uh, with, with um, uh, um And so that was why I was actually feeling lethargic uh, septicemia has early septicemia has uh, many of the same symptoms as uh, dehydration, and uh, and luckily I had some antibiotics on board from my leg accident, some ciprofloxacin, and so I got on a massive uh, course of uh, ciprofloxacin, and that's what uh, knocked out the the uh, uh, the the, uh, the blood poisoning. Otherwise, I would have been in real trouble. And and what about uh, animals in the water? We we worried about any. There, there was a crocodile somewhere, wasn't there? Yeah, there was a, there was a crocodile. That was um, so. This was the end of the Pacific crossing, and uh, I had to. There was a bit of a bit of a drama because the boat was nearly rocked. The pedal boat was nearly wrecked on the Barrier Reef trying to get to Australia, and we had to have it rescued. And I transferred into a kayak, and. Um, paddled the last 20-odd miles from the Barrier Reef to the Australian mainland. This is way up north of North Queensland, up around north of uh, Cape, north of uh, Cooktown, where there's no settlements. And, uh, and I was about 100 metres from shore, and I felt something watching me, and I looked behind, and there was a, a saltwater crocodile that was following my kayak. What? And at that point, he wasn't interested in my kayak. Uh, sorry, he wasn't interested in me, he was just interested in the kayak. I think because from underneath the water, a, a kayak uh, looks a bit like another croc. Yeah. And uh, I've since been told that, I guess, uh, crocs, in that part of the world, since they stopped hunting in the 70s, there's tons of young male crocs looking for territory. So anything that comes into their territory that looks like another croc, they'll check it out if it's uh, like it's an imposter. Anyway, so I had a bit of a, I had a bit of a drama on the beach with this croc. Well, what happened? What happened? I got to the beach, no problem, and I looked behind. I was paddling like, this is like, my worst nightmare come true, right? Like, oh. it can't be happening. It's just like, 
And so my heart was racing, got to the beach, looked behind, the croc had gone. I thought, fantastic, relief, it's gone back in the water. So I was, and it was a really shallow beach, and I started burying all my dry bags up to the high water mark. And a few minutes later, I looked back, and, and, the, and my kite was parked down by the water's edge. And I saw this thing coming through the surf, going for my kayak. And I, before I really stopped to think what I was doing, I ran down the beach with my, uh, I grabbed my timber paddle, and I ran down the beach, and I just tried to stop it from grabbing my kayak. And so I reached over with my paddle over the kayak, and I just tried to push the, push it away, push the croc away. And it, 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 it opened its mouth, and it latched onto the end of my paddle blade. Oh, my goodness. And we were having this sort of tug of war for what seemed like minutes, but it was just, of course, seconds. And, uh, and, then, and then eventually I thought, you know, if I... If I let that thing get across the kayak and go for me, then I'm a goner. Because it was a pretty big uh, animal. I mean, this is a 15-foot-long croc. And they're 15 foot long? Big. But they're pretty no, huge. They're, they're, they're really wide. Mm. Anyway, so, and then I remembered, I think from a National Geographic show I'd seen or something from years back, that they have this, a flap in the back of their throat. So instead of pulling the kayak, uh, putting the paddle blade, I ended up pushing it away from me and it went into the back of this thing's throat enough for it to release and I just belted the thing as hard as I could over the side of the head and, um, and broke my paddle too uh, but it was enough to frighten the crop back into deeper water and then I was able to get on top of a bit of high ground on the headland uh, where it couldn't get to me and I spent a very sleepless night watching these two orange eyes patrolling back and forth um, in the water all night. And then in the morning mm. when I got up, it was it was gone. When you were being followed by the crocodile, were you making like a, a loud whining noise like I'd make? I'd be so terrified. <laughs> think, <laughs> yeah. How did you just I, keep I, your cool? I don't understand. I'd be frozen to death. I mean, I, terrified. You know the weird thing, though, is... is, is, is um, is, is it's weird, it's almost surreal when that mm. stuff happens. It's like you're kind of, everything feels like it's in slow motion and you think you're in a film, but you just react, you're just reacting. And I remember after this whole debacle, I remember standing on the beach there and I threw up because it's like I didn't feel any, um, uh, I didn't feel scared at the time, but afterwards I had this massive like shock basically kicked in and mm. I threw up on the beach because it was a delayed reaction. And I just thought, what the hell were you, what were you think you were doing, you know, mm. going down there? You should have gone the other way, idiot. But then again, I didn't want to lose my tie because it was about 100 miles away from Cooktown. Um, but it was weird, it was a sort of delayed reaction. But in the moment, you're just sort of dealing with it, you're reacting to it and it just happened so fast it's 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 it's, it's really really amazing well you, your your whole journey was was it was it going west around the globe was that how you did it correct yeah we were going to go east initially but we didn't want to run out of money in russia so we decided we'd hit the u.s first and see if we can get sponsorship so that's really the reason why we went west about i know this sounds incredibly cowardly but were you ever actually scared, as in just terrified by the landscape, by, by what could happen, your mind playing tricks? 
The thing that scared me the most, I think, was um, I didn't I, I, I didn't have a problem with the ocean, like I mentioned before. I really, uh, I mean, it was surprising to me because I thought I was going to be terrified of being at sea and seeing land sort of slip below the horizon, but I loved being out there. Um, and I didn't mind the, 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 the big desert, uh, the Sahara, biking through the Sahara, although I do remember one slightly disconcerting moment where I was cycling through Sudan. And I remember losing track of the Nile River and, and going off course and being suddenly realizing that I'm sort of in this vast expanse of sand and heat and, um, and luckily I had a GPS with me. But I just had this sort of momentary sense of panic, like you're lost, you don't know where the water source is, and, and that wasn't a good moment. And but also the the other times I felt threatened, I think, were really around people. Sometimes I, mm. I don't feel threatened by by nature so much as I do. I have done that at times by people, and ninety nine percent of the people I met, of course, were absolutely fantastic and wonderful. But it's just the occasional kind of bad characters that you meet, and um, and 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 so that that sort of can it can sort of sully your impression of a place. And I remember going biking, biking through Indonesia, for example, and I was pulled off my bicycle at one point by some guys on a on a motorcycle, and they tried to take my camera and one thing and another. And this is while I was riding along at speed. And I remember thinking, you know, that could really tarnish my impression of, of Sumatra. And, and that same evening, I met some really lovely, lovely people in the next village, and they took me in and bandaged up my road rash and and I, it was a constant struggle to try and remain, you know, not not a struggle, but I remember thinking, you've got to keep positive. It's just a few bad apples that kind of that can make you think different about a place. Did you ever have to break the law? I did. <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> Why? Why and how? Why and how? Oh, well, the biggest um, one, I suppose, was crossing between Sudan and Egypt. And the only way you can do it overland is uh, legally is to take the weekly ferry. I think they now have a road, but they didn't back when I did it in 2006. Um, and so I couldn't use the ferry, of course, because it would have been it would have broken the human power journey. So I applied for permission to kayak about a hundred miles uh, across the border, across uh, Lake Nasser, and I. The Sydney didn't care, but the Egyptians were really, really jittery about the border and not letting anyone across. So I applied for permission at the uh, Egyptian consulate in Khartoum. Didn't hear anything for weeks and weeks. I was finally my Sudanese visa ran out, and I was in the I was in Sudan illegally. And I thought I just thought you know I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wing it and see how far I get. So I paddled at night um, and uh, hid during the day and managed to get across the border without getting detected. There were a couple of observation posts either side of the lake. Uh, but on the third morning, I managed to reach Abu Simbel where the road picked up again. But um, in the early morning light, I was, uh, I was seen by some fishermen from shore, and they came out, and they apprehended me, and they took me to their island, and I was arrested. Spent the next two days uh, in a prison cell in uh, Abu Simbel. And initially, they thought I was just an idiot tourist who'd got lost, and 
and they found all my equipment, satellite phone, laptop, and worst of all, they found my camera, and I'd stupidly taken video footage of crossing the border. And of course, the GPS showed where I'd gone, the route that I'd gone. Um, so that then, they then thought, well, this guy is, he's taking, and he's, he's, in, he's looking back at my passport, and, he, and my name is Lewis, right? And he's, uh, because he's Egyptian, he can't speak English, and I can't speak Arabic. So he, he's interrogating through Google Translator. And um, he, uh, he thinks my name is Levi. He said, your name is Levi. I said, no, it's Lewis. He said, oh, you're, you're Israeli. I said, no, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. not. And so he thought, and Egyptians absolutely hate it. They've been fighting each other for 3,000 years, right? So he thinks I'm an, an Israeli spy, mm. uh, taking pictures of the border crossing, blah, blah. So then at that point, I thought, I'm never going to see England again. I'm going to spend <laughs> the rest of my life in this horrendous prison uh, cell in, 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 in Egypt. And then fortunately, my commission, amazingly, my commission, um, Caught up with me. I was sitting in this. I was sitting in the in the prison cell, and, uh, and they were about to load me on a truck up to Cairo for more interrogation. And this fax machine spat out this one page in Arabic, and uh, in the corner of the room, and one of his this guy was uh, this major of intelligence uh, was given this paper by one of his orderlies, and it was my uh, it was my commission in Arabic. Um, to cross the lake, so that caught, make that thankfully caught up with me, and proved that I wasn't actually an Israeli spy, and I was actually a secret tourist after all. So all the things you've been through, that so what was the most satisfying uh, experience? Was it when you were there, or on reflection when you came back? What was the thing that kind of really fulfilled you on that journey? Well, it wasn't getting back. I can tell you that. Uh, Why not? I knew that. Well, because. I knew that there was going to be an anticlimax, as mm. there inevitably always is with these things. I remember, you know, even crossing oceans, there's a real sense about up until sort of the the moment that you arrive uh, after you've cuddled across the Atlantic, for example, or across the Pacific. There's a sort of a momentary sense of achievement, and then and then it's like you're, a huge anticlimax. And I think most people, most people who do big long journeys, will testify to that. Um, and I knew that at the end of the 13 years, arriving back at Greenwich, there was an element, there was an initial kind of euphoria. And of course, I saw my, hadn't seen my family for so long. And, and there was a big sort of media, the five minute sort of media um, splash. Uh, so that was all kind of fine and good. But I just knew that it was going to be difficult to, you know, as soon as I got back to, to then switch gears and assimilate back into civilization. Um, so, in answering your question, the most satisfying part of the journey, I think really, uh, well, I love the schools. I love going to schools um, and, and seeing young people, uh, their faces. That, that for me was massively important. Um, but I think also just because now there's kind of momentary episodes when you're out at sea, you're a thousand miles from land, and you've just got an amazing sunset before you. And you do get some incredible sunsets out at sea. And you'll get this 360-degree vista, and there's no obstructions to your vision. There's no light pollution out there at night. And the stars, you know, at night are amazing. And you'll just have, it was those sort of moments of, of completely transcending, in a sense, 
even body it sounds a bit wacky, but there was this real sense of just being there you know, on the planet. And, and those were the most memorable uh, times, I think, just connecting with nature at a, at a very, very um, sort of primal, visceral level. I think those are the, those were my most memorable. Did you learn anything about yourself? Or is the fact that you did it for so long uh, naturally inclines itself towards development anyway because you're there for more than a decade doing it? But, or did you, did you become someone you didn't think you were? Did you see anything of yourself? Yeah, no, I did. I mean, I, I think I learned most about myself on that first ocean crossing, the Atlantic. Um, and I was very interested back then, especially I was into meditating and I was into this whole process of stripping down the conditioned self, if you like, and seeing what sort of was underneath. Um, and that was what I really wanted to use that first ocean crossing to do, was to try and, you know, how, what, how much of my identity or how much of Jason Lewis is to do with, um, you know, upbringing and schooling and media and, and all of the factors that we're exposed to growing up and how, what is, is there something more interesting underneath that's just uh, more uh, innate perhaps. Um, and um, of course, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really, it's a bit of a rabbit hole of a question because really what it boils down to, what I found anyway was that um, the real me, if you like, isn't, isn't really all of those things that unfortunately you do need to be able to operate in life, you know. Um, and I, I know, for example, that uh, I'm quite determined. I know that I'm, this, I, I put it this way, uh, having done this for as long as I have, I'm now comfortable with who I am. Hmm. I'm comfortable in myself. I never was growing up. I was the most uh, shy, um, unconfident uh, young person growing up. But I never felt, uh, I never felt like I fit in. I think that's a lot of, you probably hear that a lot doing these interviews, but, uh, you know, a lot of us who feel the need to do these things or find themselves end up uh, doing them by uh, by default, in my case, we are, uh, we're perhaps outsiders, we're, we're somewhat misfits. So we need to go out into these wild, uh, empty places to, uh, to connect with something that we feel is important for ourselves, to find meaning. And for me, the meaning was, uh, really to do with uh, uh, the life that I adapted to on the boat, the small boat. And that's really the life that I'm now trying to sort of take from the expedition into my normal day living now, in so much as scaling everything down, living more simply, uh, being more aware of what I'm consuming, which you have to do on a small boat if you're going to survive. You have to be aware of how much water you're consuming and food you're consuming and you have to be aware of what, where your energy is coming from because it comes from solar power and wind power. So in a way, I feel like that those months on the boat uh, gave me the, the skills or the tools that I now need to live my life more, uh, more fully and, and uh, with more meaning uh, here on land. So what does your daily routine now look like? I mean, is it, is it um, built around self-development, self-improvement? How have you kind of put your daily routine together? Now, it, well, I'm just coming out of a very long book writing process, um, and that really has determined my my schedule 
in terms of how I live my average day. Um, getting up, writing really early when my fre- when my head is still fresh, um, and then editing in the afternoon. So, uh, so how does that work? So, so you get up, crack of dawn. I mean, how does that work exactly? Yeah, I get up. Um, I try to get up five thirty, between five thirty and six. Um, I get writing by six thirty. Right. Um, and I find that I write my best stuff. But by nine o'clock, I've probably written what I'm going to write for the day almost. Like I've written my best stuff when my head is clear. And then, you know, by nine o'clock, there's all this other, there's all the other stuff you've got to deal with in the modern day, you know, social media and emails and um, maybe find, you know, do some other paying work uh, if necessary to bring to pay bills. And then in the evening, I normally find it's quite a good time to come back with a fresh head and, and edit the stuff that I've written the day before. So how long has it taken you to write the uh, the three volumes then? Because I know you've won you awards for them. You know, yeah, we did. We won some. So this was, I mean, the publishing journey in a way has sort of followed the physical journey in so much as um, it's taken me many years. I'm embarrassed to say it's taken me eight years to write this then. Yeah, but look um, at the plaudits. What's that? Look at the plaudits you've received. I mean, people love it. Yeah, but that's, that's a, I mean, that's a long time. I'm, I do have, in my defense, I'm, um, I am slightly dyslexic, so uh, that's been a real challenge. But when I first finished the journey, um, I got an agent, a high-powered agent, with a big London agency, and it was all very kind of hectic. Because when you do, when you do it, when you finish a journey like this, you need to kind of capitalize on the media exposure very yeah. quickly. Because yeah. everybody forgets about after about five seconds. <laughs> um, yeah. Donated fifteen quid. 
you know, they were all sort of somewhat invested in it, and I just thought, so I, I so here, here I am eight years later. But it must be so rewarding going through those journeys on your own terms, thinking about it, processing it properly. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's been, I'm so, now I'm, I have been some moments when I've, you know, waking up at three in the morning with a, in a cold sweat thinking, what did you do, you idiot? No, no, no. Um, but, but I'm really proud of, 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 of what I've produced and I've had a great editor, uh, my wife, Tammy, um, and, you know, everybody needs a good editor. And it, it's been a way for me to process fully what the whole thing was about because, I mean, uh, like we were saying earlier, I mean, it's my reasons changed through the journey and it, it's going back into those journals. I mean, I had 44 handwritten journals and thousands of blog entries, video footage, and, and it six of those years was probably just research. Um, going back in and, and getting authentic dialogue. I mean, you're a writer. You know that you can't make up, you can't really make up dialogue as well as you can from real life. Mm. And... Um, and to make it authentic, you, you need to kind of cap. So it's it's crawling back to all video footage and, and finding out what people actually said, and, and that takes a lot of time. And finally, if you on your on your deathbed, uh, many 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 years from now, and your great 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 grandchild came to you and said, "What should I do with my life? What would you say?" Um, I think I would. Uh, it's a difficult one um, because everybody's different. But I would, I would say uh, uh, that the most important thing is to uh, follow that little voice in your heart, uh, which is telling you to do things which other people may not agree with and other people may say you're stupid to try. And other people will probably say you're going to end up being, you know, poor or uh, a, a burden to other people, you know, a burden to society, you, got, you do have to follow that voice because uh, that voice is actually um, truth. It's actually mm. the only real thing that you will ever achieve in life is if you follow your truth. And you're going to probably, it's going to take you a merry dance. There are going to be many, many times where you think that you've taken the wrong choice. But if you just keep on listening to the voice, then then and it will come good in the end, and, that, and that's been my experience. So, but that's what I would tell them. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, Jason Lewis, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. To find out more about Jason, visit jasonexplorer.com. Alternatively, you can buy his book, billyfishbooks.homestead.com, catch up with him on Twitter at explorerjason, or find out more about his new expedition, MicroEarths, on microearths.com. This is Ben Wilson, and thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye.